Have you thought this through? No way will that work. Are you sure? Is there any money in that? You'll never make any money doing that. How are you going to pay the mortgage? Just get a job. Are you going to try to sell that? Why can't you be normal like everybody else? All right. Were your parents morons too? The savvy entrepreneur to the rescue. Congratulations. That really turned out well. That was a really good job. I'm getting ready. I'm ready. You know, I wish I had thought of that. I never thought I needed one then. How did you do that? I'm so glad you're here. I wish I had the courage to follow my dreams. Good morning, all you entrepreneurs and small business people. You're listening to the Savvy Entrepreneur Show. I'm Doris Nagel, your host for the next hour. The show has two goals, to share helpful information and resources. If I can help just one entrepreneur out there, one of you, not to make some of the many mistakes I have made myself or that I've seen clients or friends make over the years, then I've been successful. The second goal is to inspire. I don't know about you, but I often found being an entrepreneur is confusing, often lonely. You have no idea if you're on the right track or where to turn for good advice. So every week on the show, I have guests who are willing to share their stories and their advice. And this week's guest is Jeff McNeil. He is the founder and owner of a company called Keepsake with a Q, who joins me this week to share his journey as an entrepreneur. So, Jeff, thanks so much for being with me today. Welcome to the Savvy Entrepreneur Show. Thanks, Doris. Thanks for having me on. I'm privileged to be here, and I'm really honored to be able to share my story with you and your listeners. Talk a little bit about you, your background, and how you came to entrepreneurship. What should people know about you? Sure. Well, I'm from Newton, Massachusetts. Uh, it's a suburb of Boston. And uh, I'm turning 40 this year. It's always good to have context around age because my business um, revolves around family and saving memories and parenthood. My background is in design, specifically UX design. I went to school for design. And when I got out, I was focused on a freelance career. I did some animation back when flash uh, media was a thing for training. But my career in working for others really ended in my mid-20s. So I've been self-employed first with my own um, small business website design business for about nine years through my early 30s and then have been doing keepsakes since uh, 2015 when we went full time. What was it in you that made you want to be your own boss? Yeah, for me, I think it has been a yearning to um, pave my own path. And I've already started thinking about this through my lens as a father. My, my oldest is 13 and, you know, not too many years he'll be entering the workforce, presumably. And I think that a lot of people look at full-time employment as the destination for where one goes when they get out of school. And I think that the guidance that I'm planning on giving to my kids, because I've been through this myself, is that there's sort of an illusion that full-time employment is safer than entrepreneurship. Would you rather have it in your own hands or would you rather have it in somebody else's hands? And I'll, I'll share one quick story. You know, the, the way that I found myself into freelancing, doing small business website work when that was a thing, back in 2006, I was actually laid off from a, a small company that was about eight people, very fun work environment. But that company and that the entrepreneur who was heading up that firm 
had all of his eggs in one basket, unfortunately, with one client. And uh, so it wasn't exactly my lesson to learn, but sort of indirectly, I learned that lesson. And, you know, that was really palpable. It's like, you think you have full-time work set and you're, you know, arguably more stable than freelancing, but, you know, in a lot of cases, you're not. Right. Well, talk a little bit about your business. What is Keepsake and what does it do? Who's it for? Sure. I think um, in getting to Keepsake, I think it's helpful to, to just cover briefly what I was doing prior. Um, so for those, I think it was about seven to nine years prior to Keepsake, what I was doing was design work for small businesses. And in the rearview mirror, I realized that I was actually a probably a better business person than I was designer because I always really liked um, learning about folks' businesses and figuring out um, you know, new innovative marketing ideas, et cetera. But what I, what I was finding was frustrating or sort of the missed opportunity with doing that was that, you know, in the end of the day, I'm getting paid for my time and that's pretty much it. So you can charge a decent hourly rate as a designer or, you know, a small business consultant, et cetera, but you don't share in any of the upside. The upside is effectively capped and the amount of money that you can bring home to your family is effectively capped as well, you know, um, based on your hours or if you have some subcontractors, even based on, on their hours. And so all the while during those years of, you know, the, uh, you know, the 2010s, I was really yearning for some type of um, product that I could create that would have more lasting value and one that wouldn't require, you know, wouldn't be linear with the amount of time that I put in. Ah. And so while um, my wife and I uh, had the idea for Keepsake in 2014, we were at a time when we weren't necessarily looking for business ideas. It wasn't like, oh, we're going to start a company and, you know, let's churn through a bunch of ideas. But I have found that for us, the ideas that most have traction are ones that, you know, we are personally um, passionate about. And uh, one of the things that's unique about, about my story is that my wife and I um, actually knew each other in middle school. We were friends oh in high school. Oh my goodness. That's wonderful. Mm -hmm. What a wonderful story. Yeah. And um, while we didn't date in high school, we actually um, re-met on Facebook of all places. So thank you, Mark Zuckerberg. Um, and uh, after college, we fell in love and got married uh, relatively early for us, with, or for our generation, um, kind of what we call geriatric millennials. Uh, we got married when we were 25 and we had our first kid when we were 26. Um, so, and uh, we didn't stop there. We continued to grow our family. And by the mid 2010s, we had four kids under the age of eight. Um, and so when and, you think and about- six kids total, about, right? Uh, since then it, it's grown to six. Um, but wow. where we were in, in the early days of Keepsake was, you know, wow. uh, a young family and, you know, with busy household, a lot of love, but, you know, what it does with that lens is it sort of exacerbates any problem that, that, you know, parents of one or two kids are going to experience someone with four is arguably going to experience it more, you know, with more vigor. So what we were finding <laughs> is that, you know, we didn't have a great place to be saving the memories that were meaningful to us. And then equally important, we didn't have somebody um, to sort of nag us and stay on top of memory capture because it's it's easy when you have a baby book or a journal at the bedside table to you know uh procrastinate and i'm you know a chief procrastinator it's probably the the achilles heel of a lot of entrepreneurs or, or the motivating factor um so you know we really needed to create something we thought there was an opportunity to create something that would help us save the memories and would be really simple to stick with um that was the nexus for keepsake 
Yeah. Well, there's no question about it. I think a lot of us have experienced this where our our memories or our photos and recordings are very lumpy. You know, for whatever reason, we're on a vacation and we think about taking lots and lots of pictures. But then you go back and you go, what happened to my daughter's fifth birthday party? There's nothing, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And and what we've also found is like, uh, certainly the advent of the iPhone, you know, to our household and to others has made us take a lot more photos. And that's great. Um, And uh, Keepsake does not, to be clear, does not take the place of those of those photo storage solutions. But instead, like using the example of your daughter's fifth birthday, like there was probably a few funny moments or very heartfelt moments or like, you know, when you saw her eyes really light up with the, um, you know, receiving of one gift from, you know, a, a particular friend or family member that meant a lot to her, you know, that you wouldn't necessarily capture behind the lens of a camera. It's those kind of stories and that, you know, in the old days, you used to flip a photo around and have a bit of the story on the back. But digitally, we don't have that. And so, you know, the idea of Keepsake is how do we capture, you know, the stories behind the photos and some of the small moments and stories that don't end up getting photographed or videoed? And how do we, you know, really create a dead simple proactive solution for families to be able to do that? All right. So how do you do that? That's a pretty interesting question because I've been sorting photos of my daughter and even our family photos and trying to organize them and put some captions and i go oh i don't know was that you know was that 1999 or 1998 that that happened so how does keepsake do that Uh, good question so one of the first things we hypothesize is that it's a lot easier to do it in the moment than it is years later and i think you're experiencing that challenge right now and i think that that's a not the challenge that's not unique to you, but it's not a challenge that Keepsake is pursuing today. What we focus on instead is essentially developing a relationship with parents, beginning when when they're pregnant or beginning when their child is born. And what the way that we're eliciting these um, heartfelt memories is primarily through uh, question and answer. And so you will sign up for an account on the Keepsake website, or you can download the Keepsake mobile app either for. Um, your Android device or your iPhone, and you create an account that's private and secure. And you put in a little bit of info about your child, the age and and a name or the nickname. And then from there, what we do using the age of the child, we pull from our bank of prompt-based questions to be able to ask you things um, about what it's like, you know, the personality of that child, things that happen during the day, et cetera, so that we can um, over time essentially extract a picture for you of some of those memories. So you can respond back to those prompts that you get actually over text messaging, which has been really unique for us as a company. So you'll get these text message prompts. You can respond back either from word with words or with words in a photo um, or a photo only. And you can also use the mobile app. And so rather than, than the use case of you take all these photos and then years later, you try to come up with what the story was and, and bring meaning behind them. We're trying to solve that real time, essentially, so that you're taking a few moments out of each day. And then over time, you realize, hey, I've got I've got a couple hundred memories here. And the second piece of, inf- of innovation that Keepsake does is it takes all of those memories and automatically lays them into a really beautiful memory book for yourself. So if you've ever tried to make like a Shutterfly book, it's, yeah, uh, I it's have. decent quality. Yeah, but but it's it's work. You're signing up oh. on a Saturday or a Sunday, <laughs> give up hours of your day in your the time that you put in is like in linear correlation to the quality of the book, right? 
And so uh, keep safe, it's though. tough because you have to upload yeah. each photo and crop it and mess with it, size it, put backgrounds. I mean, it's a, yeah, wow, it's a lot of work. Exactly. So what we do is really upend that so that the work, air quotes, is happening bit by bit, day over day. And then the output of that is already fully automated. So at the push of a button, Keepsake will produce a book based on certain date ranges that you choose or, or the whole, you know, your, a lot of popular would be like your, your child's first year. And so a lot of parents will join Keepsake right when their child is born, save memories during the first year and beyond. But, at, you know, and month 13, they will go and order a Keepsake book. It arrives on their doorstep within a couple of weeks and you've got it. And if that book ever gets lost or your child throws it out the window or spills a drink on it, you can always order another one because all of your memories are saved um, securely in Keepsake. You know, I think a lot of us have had the experience with taking photos on the phone and keeping them, but somehow in upgrading phones or whatever, photos get lost along the way or are no longer to be found. Is there a person asking these questions or are these more auto-generated just sort of randomly? How, how do you do that? Yeah, I love that question, pun intended, because one of the things that we worked, that we, we realized early in building out Keepsake, in the early days, to be clear, it was only a, a web application and text messaging. There was no mobile app. And so your day-to-day -day interaction with Keepsake before the mobile app was all through text messaging. And what we, what, as my background as a designer and as, you know, as a, a procrastinating entrepreneur, I knew that I wanted a service that would, that would feel like a human texting me. So instead right. of, you know, being very robotic, keepsakes, text prompts are all designed to be sounding like they're coming from a friend of yours. The number to be clear is always the same phone number and, and people save it in their phone as keepsake um, and it is totally secure. But we've, while well, we've designed it to be feeling like a human, of course, once we reached scale, it was it was never really practical to be sending those messages out through a human. I yep. figured you'd be texting all day long, which might be fun for about a day. And then after that, whoa, that's a no. lot. No, I actually never did that because I, I really wanted Keepsake and I continue to want Keepsake to feel private and personal. And so if you know that, you know, if I'm trying to get my neighbor to sign up for Keepsake who has kids and, you know, he knows that I'm sending the texts, he's not going to be real. And um, what really differentiates Keepsake from maybe like the highlight reel that folks put on Instagram, you know, it's a great platform, but most people do not put really like challenging moments on Instagram as a parent or as a child. And so you get essentially like a highlight reel that goes on Instagram. With Keepsake, right. we're really trying to have it portray the full picture of parenthood. And so we don't want, you know, I'm really delighted to be able to, in a few years, go back and show my keepsake and my kids, their keepsake um, journals and the content that's in there and not just show, Hey, these are all the amazing things, but Hey, these were some of the challenges as well. And so when they become parents, they're gonna, not going to look back at the baby book of sorts and say, Oh, my dad was so perfect. They're going to be like, Oh, okay. Well, you know, he was a real human, just like I am when they're, you know, if they decide to have children. <laughs> yeah. I'm just thinking of some of the things my parents might've said about me. <laughs> <laughs> In an unguarded moment. Well, how did you come up with the idea for this service? In the shower. That's the specific place that I know you didn't ask that, but I think this is relevant because I've been doing a lot of thinking about where, and I've had, you know, as an entrepreneur, you never stop generating business ideas. You know, where, you know, what time, what conditions generate ideas for me? It's in the shower. And so, <laughs> uh, 
I was in the shower. Um, my wife and I are very close. She, she was at the sink doing something. And um, she and I were having a conversation, you know, from shower to sink. And we, uh, at that time, it was, I remember it exactly. It was May, it was May of 2014. And we were just lamenting how we, you know, these amazing memories that we knew we didn't want to forget were just not getting recorded. And so we had the idea for Keepsake. One of us, and I don't even know which one it was, but one of us said, hey, what if we could create a text messaging service where you could text it anything you wanted to and it would save it, you know, because during the day I'm working and she was, you know, raising our children um, as a stay-at-home mom, she would text me things that happen. And so, yeah. but as you know, like you have dozens of text threads and stuff gets lost. It's not meant to be a storage solution. No, so, it is not. you know, the idea was, hey, could we create a service um, that would securely save content that you save it? And so I was like, okay, probably. And then the other one of us said, hey, yeah, and what if it actually would prompt you with some questions? You know, that was it. That was the, the simple aha moment for Keepsake. We stayed up late on that Saturday night talking about how it could work. I wrote a one-page brief, uh, like for a functional brief, like a spec on Sunday. And then at that time, I had a um, my small business website design firm. We had uh, two developers who were not currently assigned to a project. Uh, and because I owned that whole company and called the shots, I could say, hey, guys, here's the spec. This is what we're going to work on. And we did it. I did. did and we started it. I had done no competitive research. Well, um, I was going to ask you, know, wait, this, no. is, this is if you build it. If I build it, they will come. I mean, I know. I know. I almost cringe in sharing this, but I think it's it's helpful because it's like every story is unique. I mean, my wife and I just felt so um, confident that at, at minimum it would solve our problem. And, you know, that's a motivating factor and enthusiasm, you know, can get you pretty far. I suppose it helped that you, in fact, were part of the demographic that you were looking to capture with this product and service, right? Yeah. And I'll also say it's, um, to be really clear, it's not as if like, you know, they started creating it and, and for the record, I think about four weeks later, we got our first text messages and we we're using it, but I'm not at all trying to portray that the journey was created and then we had immediate success. There is a large chasm of time between 2014 and when we had our first <laughs> paying customer in 2016 um, that, it, you know, is very, um, you know, is very important not to gloss over. Well, talk about those couple of years. I mean, um, first of all, one thing that occurred to me is that to do what you're talking about requires quite a bit of technology it it requires um some sort of almost artificial intelligence to be able to send questions that are relevant and maybe follow-up questions and then to be able to put together a memory book and basically do all the things behind the scenes that you and i were just touching on about how you what you'd have to do to create a, a memory book in shutterfly so that's a lot of technology there. How did you tackle that piece of it? Yeah, so definitely what you're describing is more toward the keepsake of today. But in the early days, we really had to pare down, like, what are we trying to prove out, you know, and how simplistic can we make the product to try to prove that out and, and deliver value? I remember the first keepsake, the V1 of keepsake had, I think, originally I loaded up 12 questions. One of them was like, what's your child's favorite TV show? So imagine getting that, you know, one out of 12 times. Um, <laughs> but that's it. I mean, really trying to build, there is a there was a static list of questions that Keepsake would pull from randomly. 
I don't believe we even had any segmentation along age of child, but we could build a proof of concept uh, that at least we were able to, I think we then expanded the question set to a few hundred. We were able to get some friends and family using it. And I think at that point in, you know, probably mid 2015, we had, I don't know, 30 or 40 people using it, I'm, I'm sure irregularly. And frankly, it, I felt a little stuck because while we had built a prototype that, you know, in, in had the uh, potential to be something a lot bigger, I didn't really know where to go with it. And um, at that time, it was pretty clear that, you know, my wife and I had decided that as enthused as she was about the business, she just, we weren't in a position for her to spend any real time in it because she's a full-time mom. So, you know, in a lot of ways, in, in really early days of Keepsake, I was a sole co-founder, a single co-founder. Um, or a single founder, I should say. And that's a lonely journey. And it's really hard to know what moves to make. Um, so it was actually mid 2015, where I was still my day job, so to speak, was still doing the design work. And um, I happened upon another entrepreneur. His name is Duncan Street. He's my now co-founder, but uh, I met Duncan mid 2015. And he was actually his, his, day, his uh, daytime job, he was doing market research as a consultant. That's how I met him because I signed up for a research um, to be a research subject um, for some you know small test they were doing. And we got to talking afterwards and turns out he was an entrepreneur and he was actually working on uh, a side venture to do text messaging, to do language learning, actually using text messaging. So here we are, we had two wow. founders who were both using text messaging very early, you know, early bootstrap startups. Um, and, uh, I talked him into us co-advising each other. So we began kind of meeting, I think once a month, um, and just talking about what was going on with our businesses and trying to help each other. And I've always felt like I was getting a lot more help out of him than I was giving him. Um, but, uh, um, over the, the coming months, it definitely was clear to me that I, I really wanted a co-founder. I wanted somebody else to join the business. And you'd think the first person I would go to was Duncan, but it actually wasn't because I thought that he was so, um, you know, two feet into his business. I was a little um, um, cautious about, you know, asking him anything about that because I didn't want to express any doubt in his venture. Um, but when I asked another person to be my co-founder who thankfully ended up saying no, Duncan um, confided in me. He said, Hey, I was a little offended that you didn't ask me. And I was like, Oh my gosh, you'd, you'd consider joining of, of course, like this, this small business with, you know, zero revenue and, you know, just hopes and dreams. So Duncan came aboard to the business in late 2015. And I believe that he had one or two conditions. One, um, I had to decide to go full-time into keepsake. And the second condition was we needed to build a remote company because while he were he was here in Boston at the time, he was just uh, about to make a move back to his hometown in San Diego. So um, the pros outweighed the cons. And I said yes to that deal. Both he and I put in some money into the business, which was very difficult for me at the time, but um, I made it work. And we went full-time into the business in late 2015, again, with you know, I think a few hundred users and uh, no business model to make revenue at all and scaling um, text messaging bills. Wow, that is, I, I'm a little, I'm a little overwhelmed. So really, you're talking about the first two or three years, you poured in a lot of time and a lot of resources to create uh, the platform and the text messaging and you know you talk about um, having friends and family as users as as sort of betas to test it but that 
that's a lot of that's a lot of time to troubleshoot things and you know help them out and with nothing coming in i I, yeah, so I mean, I'm a, you know, I'm a little speechless. Hearing it back from you, I think I think one of the things I want to I want to convey, I think this is helpful for other entrepreneurs is that I was in a unique position <laughs> where I owned my own um consulting business for for the website design and so and I had I think at that time I had maybe six or seven different contractors that were working on different projects, but it was relatively quiet at sort of the leadership level. But I had these two developers who were on the payroll effectively, but they were in between projects. And so whenever they were in between projects, I would give them keepsake work. And I don't even think we called it keepsake then. And so they were being paid out of you know my company's pocket, essentially out of the prof- potential profits of that company. And so while like you had said really early on, I went two feet you know, first into building the prototype of the product without doing any research. That's true. But at the same time, it was effectively um, you know, done under the umbrella of this, of the other um, company that I had, which was arguably a little bit more stable. Yeah, that, that's definitely helpful. Definitely helpful. So, all right. So, you know, you're, you spent a lot of time early on dealing with some of the technology issues and, and building a basic platform and testing that with friends and family. But then you found a, a co-founder or a, 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 a true business partner. How did things change after that? Yeah, that's, that's a great question. So one of the ways that I knew that that a that Duncan was the right co-founder for me was that you know in that stage right before we went in full time it was you know I didn't really know what I had and he advised that we go and do some interviews around just like let's frame up what's the problem here is this you know pain point around memory capture something that's universal within parenthood and with his background in market research he was able to set up some sessions for me and actually be there with me and he trained me on how to do these interviews. And I was able to talk to about 15 parents within my local community here in Newton. And I remember um, one of those interviews really, really well. It was actually a father of two who grew up with alopecia. That's where you're, you have uh, no hair. And he shared that with me because part of his story was that when he, when he was young or now as an adult, he has no photos from his parents of his childhood. Um, and it was just, and, and he, what he had shared is that his parents were just, you know, really, um, I don't know what the right words here are, but, you know, basically embarrassed or, or concerned or just, you know, felt some shame. Um, and so, you know, that was incredibly difficult to hear, but in the same breath, he, when we described to him, Hey, like, you know, we're thinking of building this product that would do X, Y, and Z. He was like, Oh my gosh, like that fits so well into my life because he, as a father of young kids, had committed himself to um, doing the exact opposite of what was done for him. And so being really diligent at saving the memories, the good and the bad about his daughters and their journey. And it is those, you know, that story in particular has helped me through, you know, a lot of dark days in the entrepreneurial journey about like, is this worth it? Am I doing the right thing? You know, just a lot of second guessing that so many entrepreneurs go through. That's why it's so important to pick a product and a, you know, build a solution for something that you care about deeply because otherwise it's just too easy to quit. It really is. Yeah. Jeff, you mentioned that you found a co-founder who insisted as one of his conditions of joining that you join the business full time. How did you make that jump? And what was that like? 
you had a product you hadn't done a lot of market research on, you had a nice little design business, but then, uh, I don't know, did you pull the plug on it? Did you find someone else to run that? How did that happen? Yeah, it's funny because, you know, I want to make sure if Duncan's listening to this, he's probably going to get, going to uh, check the history books because come to think of it, I'm not sure that I was, that he was like, you know, we need to do this. I, honestly, what was really happening for me, and I've noticed this in my life, in my professional life is like, if I'm out of motivation on something, I mean, it's done. So my previous business, while technically, you know, by mid 2016 was still operational and we were driving revenue, et cetera, I'm, I was pretty much out of gas and I saw that keepsake, you know, I could choose what I worked on during the day. And so am I going to work on the business that I've been running for nine years, which, you know, really had become about the money, or am I going to work on this passion project of keepsake? And so, you know, the obvious answer to that is the latter. And so, you know, the, one of the lessons that I've learned along the way is like, be really careful and understanding or uh, introspective and understanding like what is driving you as a motivating factor? When I first started that design business, it was all about the design work. Um, but toward the end, if it becomes all about the money, it's just a recipe, it, you know, it's a race to the bottom. And so, you know, while it sounds in hindsight, like a huge, bold move going full-time into keepsake, I frankly would, I didn't have a toll, wasn't a lot of alternative um, because my enthusiasm had really waned. And so it was just the natural next evolution. It was certainly, I remember some late night conversations with my wife, you know, really thinking, um, you know, what would this look like? And uh, I also just remember being so lucky because my wife and I um, are just so, so much on the same page. And, you know, she was as encouraging as I, as I was excited about making this move. You know, it's not as if I had, you know, uh, hundreds of thousands of dollars, like set aside and like, I had enough money to, you know, do whatever I wanted. It was very you know, touch and go financially in the early years, but I'm so glad, you know, in hindsight that, that I made the move and it's worked out really well. Well, so what happened to your web design business? Because it sounds like you had quite a few people working, you had customers. I mean, did you sell that business? I mean, that sounds like um, a pretty viable business model. Yeah. I, what I remember, this is really interesting because I remember at the time that Maybe I could have tried to sell it, but what I actually did with it is that I sort of mothballed it on the side. I was like, maybe I'll need to come back to it. So I remember uh, not wanting to sell it because I'm like, maybe I need to come back and step back into it. Right. And at the same time, like the other reality of that business is with a lot of services business that are small is that it was sort of a wagon wheel design where I was the one who was bringing in the work. I was the one who had the relationship. So if I'm pieced out. I, you know, I really hadn't built a team. I hadn't built any sales or lead generation engine for it. So, you know, it was effectively me with a lot of really smart subcontractors, but as soon as you pull that, you know, pull the plug on the sales aspect of it, you know, it's done. You know, that's a pretty interesting observation because as you say, a lot of service businesses are really built that way. Just as one example, I have a handyman who has done projects for me for the past 25 years. He's now got a team of people who I think he's got maybe 15 guys who work for him at least part-time, and yet he wants to retire next year. And I asked him, I said, so Kurt, what's going to happen to your business? And he, he just kind of shrugged his shoulders, you know, because I know he is as you said, the wagon wheel, the, the spider in the center of the web. He is the guy who makes things go. And without him, 
you know, and yet here's this incredibly valuable business. So, you know, word to some folks who are out there, there may come a day when you just decide you don't want to do it anymore. Your heart's not in it, or you may want to retire. You will want to retire at some point. So it really, it it's a whole nother journey, I think, to look at a business you've built with that kind of model and try to turn it into something that can be sold or transferred to someone else for value, right? Yeah, it's a lot of work. And I think the time to make that transition to really level up your business, your services business is not when you're ready, when you're out of gas and you're yeah. burned out. It's yeah. before that. And it's hard yeah. to recognize that. It sure is. Wise, wise words. Well, um, let's go back to keepsake. How did you find your first customers? I mean, you had a number of people who were friends and family who were helping test the product, but how do you now find customers? How did you find them then? And how do they find you? Yeah. So the early days of Keepsake, we had, you know, again, those friends and family, I think there was maybe 30 people that we were able to scrape together for the product. And I remember that at that time, our text messaging provider was just ready to release the ability to um, receive MMS, which are photos via text message, which oh. can you believe at the time that like, that wasn't a thing. Not <laughs> right, right. We take each it other, off for but, granted. It's like, yeah, well, oh, that exactly. There was a time we couldn't do that. Really? I think you could peer to peer, like I could send one to you, but the service providers hadn't yet built that technology. And so they they were like ready to release this piece. And my first, first inclination was like, okay, great. Well, it's pretty easy for our developers to just turn it on. So we'll turn it on. But this very next thing I thought of is, all right, wait a minute. I, I think I had just read the Lean Startup or one of those um, type books. And I was like, well, you know, we're not charging for any of this and we're not intending to, but why don't we put one kind of gate in the way? Why don't we say, if you want free photo texting, you want to be able to text photos to Keepsake, you just need to get, I think it was like one or two friends to sign up for the product. Um, oh, so what they call, what's commonly called a growth hack. So we put a growth hack in place sometime in, I think it was in fall of 2015. This was right before we were deciding to go full-time. We went from 300 users up to 3,000 users within a few weeks, um, all because of that, that viral loop. You know, you get, you know, one person begets two, begets four. And part of the impetus to go full-time was we were fronting all of the bills for Keepsake, not just the development, but the text messaging. So you think of text messaging, you know, as an end user as being free. Well, oh, I just pay my cell phone bill and, you know, it's texting is free. If you're a little bit older like I am, you probably remember times when you actually had to pay, you know, five cents a text message on your cell phone bill. But, you know, aye, up, aye, by, aye. exactly. But, you know, what you don't necessarily realize um, is that on the back end, even though air quote, your texting is free, folks, services like Keepsake, or if you're getting a reminder, a shipping notification about your package that just arrived, that's actually being paid for. You know, it's a right. fraction of a penny, but that but that adds up. And so in the case of Keepsake, we were, you know, I think, I think our development costs were relatively little, you know, bug fixes here and there, but we saw this text messaging bill, I think doubling month over month. And so you're, you know, pretty soon you're spending $600, $900 a month on a bill and you're like, wow. I'm wow. <laughs> so it was like, we either needed to shut it down or we needed to really pursue this thing and figure out how to monetize it. Cause at the, at that time I had no interest in fundraising. I wanted to bootstrap the whole business. Um, that's actually my thinking has since changed and we're venture backed, but you know, the early days oh, of Keepsake was you know, do everything ourselves. Yeah. So talk about that shift. That's a very, um, 
You know, the, the, the looking for funding, the, I think there are entrepreneurs that are, that their initial reaction is always to try to pitch and find find external funding. There are others who are, you know, I'm going to figure out how to do it myself, even if it takes five times longer, because I just don't want other people involved in trying to tell me how to run the business. Talk about that journey for you. Yeah, I think you teed it up really nicely. I mean, it's all about trade-offs. And I think the first thing I want to say is like, there's really no right or wrong way to fund your business. I mean, I guess if, there could be some wrong ways if we're talking about illegal activities, but you know, beyond that, uh, there's no you know improper funding strategy for your business. Um, so for us, I think I think I can intertwine the keepsake story here. You know, DNA of the business bootstrapped, and at that time, I had been looked at, kind of really took a survey of the different businesses that were in that space. And frankly, it was kind of a graveyard of companies that had failed. Um, a lot of what I saw in terms of business model, it wasn't a, it wasn't a funding failure, but you know, really failed um, because of business model. And that the way that they were monetizing was through only through the output of the content. And so, you know, Keepsake uh, would have been effectively a completely free service. And then we would have only made money through Keepsake books. But, you know, as, as you just heard in the story, First of all, that would have required a huge amount of capital to be able to support and fund all of the text messaging that was, you know, the lifeblood of taking in content. And then secondly, I realized, you know, with my design hat on, I never wanted to have a service that would be like, hey, Doris, you ready to buy a book? Hey, Doris, you ready to buy a book? Like just yeah. over and over again, just hammering you to buy a book because that's how right. we're making ends meet. Right. So instead, you know, our business model at the time was unique in our space. It was like, no, we're going to charge. It's a freemium service, what's called. So you can sign up for Keepsake for free. And then anytime, you know, anytime you want, you can upgrade to one of our paid memberships. They're done annually. Um, so you're paying for the full year up front. And it's a great way to make a commitment to yourself that you're going to use the service. It's, you know, less than $100 for the year. And it also helps Keepsake from a cash standpoint, be able to take in, you know, front load a year's worth of revenue within, you know, the first few days after that upgrade happens. Most of our upgrades happen within the first 30 days after a parent joins Keepsake. So uh -huh. that business model, yeah, that business model was actually designed originally because we were going to be a bootstrapped business that, you know, really needed to fund its own way. And so as soon as Duncan came into the business in late 2015, it immediately became apparent that the code base that had that we had been, you know, I had been working on with those original developers was really um, not not built to scale, and so oh no, I, yeah, I, we learned that the hard way. There were there were some you know data leaks, not outward leaks, but like kind of the system was really crumbling, and so we made and this was just a few days after he signed up, and it, it would be really funny to hear his story of this because he's still here. Fortunately, that was a big shock to learn. I didn't know that it was you know as bad as it was. And not to not to at all insult the work of those original developers because it was no, built no, to be no, a proof no, of concept. It, it, yeah. This is, I think, very typical of technology solutions. In fact, my guest last week um, said the same thing. You know, she designed, she had something designed. She thought she knew what she wanted, and then when she finally put it up, it really it didn't work or wasn't going to work for very long, and she basically had to start over again. So. You know, I think given the technology underpinnings of so many businesses today, it's really a factor that people need to take into consideration when they're building their business plans and figuring out what they need in order to finance the company. Yeah. So um, fortunately, though, he, he was, you know, game to continue on that journey. And so we had an outside firm build up a new code base um, within early 2016. 
But during that time, we couldn't put anybody new into keepsake. And so, you know, Duncan, oh, uh, no. <laughs> one of his strong suits was actually growth marketing. And so he set up a waitlist for keepsake using a very similar growth hack to what we'd done previously. We allowed parents to advance up in the waitlist if they got five other friends to join the waitlist. Uh -huh. And so what we had in early 2016 was a few hundred users became, or a few hundred folks sitting on the waitlist became a few thousand. We actually put 29,000 people on that waitlist wow! in 24 hours. 29,000, that's insane. Yeah, and by the end of the week, we had 100,000 on the waitlist. And actually, you know, one of the, you think about what are the things I might do differently? Duncan and I were so concerned about actually overexposing that we actually changed the offer from five friends to 10 friends. So, so we sort of intentionally like throttled down the growth of the waitlist because we were two, you know, nervous entrepreneurs at that time in early 2016. But we were really privileged to have that. And so when, when the code base was ready, something like March or April of 2016, we were ready to seed it with this new batch of folks from the waitlist. And so what we were able to do over those next few months, once we had a product that was ready, and again, we had designed that business model um, of subscription, we were able to put, I think, 50 people in, in at a time and sort of figure out, hey, what's the design of the email sequence, you know, because all of Keepsake happens automated. It's not, there's never like, you know, I'm not calling you to being like, hey, Doris, you want to buy membership? It, it's all automated. So ah. but we had to test out like, okay, what are the, what's the pricing we're going to use? What are the membership plans? How do you teach Doris how to use the product? And then, you know, how do you let her know about the membership plan? So all of that stuff was just done, you know, out of our heads. And we got really lucky in that. I remember, I remember to the day, I think this is a, a sign of somebody who really knows their own journeys is on April 16th, 2016, we had our first purchase of somebody who was in keepsake for a couple of weeks. And I remember it exactly where I was when that happened. Uh, it was so thrilling. So that was early 2016. And we, we went through that wait list. And, and by the summer, we had pushed everyone through keepsake into keepsake that was ready to go from the wait list. And it was a little bit like crickets. And so at the same time, I had um, been thinking all along that this was a business that might be good for Shark Tank. And so I had been a fan of the show. I had watched almost every episode. And when I Google searched Shark Tank auditions, it just so happened that this was a Thursday in the summer of 2016. On Monday in Atlanta, there was auditions. So I was like, hey, you know, I asked Duncan, I asked my wife if they thought I should go down and try out. And they were like, sure, sounds good. I went down, I tried out during that summer. And then a few months later, I was filming the episode in, in L.A., in September. Yeah. Yes, so that, that is so really cool. Quickly. Thank you. So was that a good experience for you? Yeah, it was, first of all, a very daunting and stressful experience. In hindsight, it's one of those things I am so glad that I did Shark Tank. Did I enjoy doing Shark Tank? Probably not. It was very stressful. <laughs> um, but sometimes, you know, there, there are moves that a founder, you know, needs to make that are in the best interest of the business. And I really had to put my own, you know, introverted side away for a moment and be like, no, this, this business deserves to be in front of the I mean, our American people. And my co-founder and my wife helped me a lot in prepping for the show. And it was overall, you know, a very good result for the business, even though you know, we didn't end up taking a deal there. Uh, I'm not spoiling it because it was, you know, five years ago now. So if you haven't watched it by now, you, you know, I'm not going to spoil it for you. A couple of people who have been on the show have told me that it's a win for the business usually to be on the show. That if you do a good job explaining what your product is and it has appealed to people, just being on the show is a huge boost. Was that true for you as well? Yeah, definitely. Although it's a boost that we had to wait for. And so while we filmed the episode in 2016, um, 
we did not have that episode air at all through that season. So the, the Shark Tank uh-huh. season runs or at that time ran September or October through May. And it was just crickets the whole season. Uh-huh. Uh, but we got a surprise all of a sudden in the fall of 2017 that I got an email on at 4 p.m. on a Thursday that our episode was going to debut on Sunday. It's like, what? So all of a sudden, you know, this episode that we taped a year ago is going to hit. And so, wow, and uh, no time, really no time to build up social media. No, no. But, you know, they're clear that, you know, sometimes schedules change and whatever. Um, So, yeah, it was a little bit of a shocker in terms of the timing, but we ended up having an episode air, which which is important because not everything that they tape airs and they tell you that. So, you know, we ended up airing and we did, you know, several months worth of free business and it has helped us even to this day around hiring and just sort of incidental benefits of the business that you wouldn't necessarily think about. Yeah. Now you mentioned you started out being bootstrapped, but now are venture capital backed. Talk about that journey a little bit. Sure. So when we came, when I came back from LA having taped Shark Tank, um, you know, I got, uh, I got offers in the tank, but declined them. Um, but really knew that for us to keep going, we had to find some financial backers because the business wasn't at a size yet where it was anywhere near self-sustainable. And so we got through luck. I got an intro to an accelerator program called Techstars. Um, it was actually Techstars Boston here where I am. Um, that's a uh, mentorship-based program that mainly focuses around early-stage companies, helping them learn how to um, fundraise, how to network, how to you know build their business and build their story. And it was ended up being the perfect time, the perfect thing for us at that time. Um, And uh, what was also unique is that while I um, was in the running for TechStars Boston, we ended up getting picked for a different program, which was called TechStars Anywhere. And that was the first of their remote based or for distributed teams kind of program. So most of that program was online, which at that time was, you know, very novel. Now Techstars Anywhere is actually their biggest accelerator, Techstars' biggest accelerator. Um, But we went through Techstars in 2017. And um, looking back, I mean, it was night and day change on us as founders and the business's trajectory because we learned how to, you know, pitch properly. We, we, you know, established a great network, not just of investors, but of other Techstars founders. You know, in a way, it's like a college network where, you know, you can go up to any other Techstars founder or email them and be like, hey, I'm struggling with X, Y, or Z, or can you help me, you know, get a lay of the land here? Um, Everybody is, it's a give back kind of culture. So everybody's very helpful. And so when we were um, coming out of that program, we were really fortunate to meet uh, a fund called Launch Capital out of New Haven. Um, they believed in us uh, really early. Um, and, and in fundraising, you know, you get a heck of a lot of no's. And yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. for me, I, I'm a pretty sensitive guy. Maybe you don't appear on the on the outside, but getting told no is pretty difficult. And so, you know, there was definitely some challenges that I had, you know, personally, just as as the pitch man, so to speak, for keepsake. But you know, I got through them, and we were able to find a great partner in Launch Capital. They um, led our what was then called our seed round, which would probably be now called a pre-seed. It was you know under a million dollars. Um, we put together around uh, in you know mid 2017, and that was our first institutional round of funding. And it was um, you know it marked definitely a big change in the business, but one that we were excited about because we picked up a new board member and we got you know a lot more guidance than we had been done, you know had previously. Yeah, uh, where do you see Keepsake? headed in the next three years. How do you see the business growing going forward? 
Yeah, I love that question because as an entrepreneur, you know, we're always looking for the next thing, you know, how do we, you know, move past where we are today? And, you know, what I've been telling my, our team and our new hires is that, you know, the keepsake of today is about helping parents save memories and their, you know, the childhood um, of their kids. But what we're really yearning to build, you know, beyond this sort of ring of the tree is having keepsakes save memories wherever you are in life's journey. You know, a family does not need to be defined and shouldn't be defined as, you know, two parents and one child or two parents and children. Um, there are a lot of different makeups of families. A lot of folks don't have children and that's their life choice. And that's fantastic. We want to build keepsake as this, um, you know, metaphorical biographer on your shoulder who's there throughout your life. And yeah. really helps you distill down what's meaningful and what's important to you. So that at the end of the day, you've got, you know, your most precious memories saved, not only for yourself, but for those around you that you really care about. Yeah. Um, and that's a, that's a big audacious goal that, you know, we're really just um, setting out um, to start on. So we're, we're pretty pumped about it. Wow. Yeah. I guess I, th as I think about it, that requires a whole different set of questions to be able to channel to your users, right? That's right. And maybe moving, you know, beyond just questions as well. I mean, not every memory can be solicited through a question. And so, you know, Keepsake will and needs to get smarter at about a taking in the right kind of content at the right time um, in more automated ways so that it's even easier to use. So for a minute, take a step back and look back. What was the hardest thing about building Keepsake? And what, if anything, would you maybe have done differently looking back? Oh, that's a, those are tough questions. So I would, um, first of all, with regards to your second question, it's taken me a while, but I've definitely really tried to um, have a mindset where I don't beat myself up about past decisions that I've made. And that's not to say I don't look back because I think that's really helpful to be reflective. But I, um, I say this as much for my own benefit as for other entrepreneurs is like, you have to, when you're making a decision, you have to tell yourself, look, I'm using the information that I have at that time to make the best decision that I believe is correct for the future. Hindsight's always 2020. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, I, I always kind of, before I do those, in, you know, reflections, I always say that, you know, back to myself, something like that. Um, but that said, one of the things that, you know, if I had it to do over, I would do differently is we would um, have worked on our um, hiring engine much sooner. We were really slow to hire. We had sort of a loose process. And I think that, one of the biggest realizations that I've had in looking back is that the very early days of a business are mostly about like you making the moves and you, you know, designing X or, you know, having somebody code this or whatever. But as soon as you've got, you know, some semblance of a business model, it's really more about building the team, building the culture, finding that leading the people who will do the work. Um, and, you know, as somebody who loves to be hands-on, that's a, that's a hard lesson to learn. Um, but it's wow. one that's valuable if you want to scale your, your business. It, it's so tough because you know you need help to be able to scale things and you need to delegate things that are, are not either your strengths or don't, you know, aren't the most highest and most valuable use of your time. And yet... It requires such a leap of faith to fund that help when you don't have really enough coming in you now to pay for that. It's tough. That's right. It's yeah, and I would say the other, you know, the most one of the most challenging things has been financially, personally. When we were starting this company, I remember pitching some investors and asking for for a salary and almost getting laughed at. Not any salary, but asking for a specific number. And 
you know, thinking in my head, you know, I had, I have five kids. Like I, this is sort of the minimum that I need. And I remember just, you know, literally getting laughed at by one investor. And so, you know, when we ended up with our our current lead investor, you know, we were paid fairly for early stage founders, of course, but that for me and where I was in my life stage and my personal overhead, it didn't, it didn't make ends meet. And so I ended up at a point where I had pulled credit cards. I had, you know, really pulled out the stops financially. I even sold an option on our home, which is like, Ah. yeah. So, um, so, I mean, you know, I was really stretched. Uh, my credit score was just, uh, you know, in in the trash. I had figured out like which bills you can be laid on that don't hit your credit score and which you can't. I mean, I was doing, I was flipping kids' bikes over the weekend. So I would go out, I would buy stuff on Craigslist and I would take better photos of it and resell it. I mean, just the kind of um, things that I and my family went through to be able to sustain um, life on early keepsake uh, was, and I don't say this as, as like, you know, bragging rights, but more so just like be really clear with other entrepreneurs, like um, what the struggle and what the challenges were. Um, because I think a lot of times we just hear, oh, everything was great and I got so lucky and whatever. But, you know, there's a lot of pain that that folks can go through um, to get where they are. Yeah. And looking back, any advice that you'd give or maybe do give today? I know you were a, a Techstar mentor that you mentioned to me before the show. What advice do you do you most often give to those folks? Well, one of the things that I that I have um, noticed that's been really good about Keepsake and that's helped us along the way is being really diligent with updates. And we do a written update every single month. And in fact, that's one of the reasons that our investors have continued to back Keepsake through good times and through challenging times is that we've been really consistent about not just reporting the great things in the business, but being really honest about here. You know, here's what's going on, the good, the bad, and the ugly. And so one of the things that I will tell other entrepreneurs is like, build your network of not just investors, but, you know, advisors and other entrepreneurs who you think might be able to help you in any possible way, if not now in the future and send regular updates because it's that relationship over time that will give you um, creed that will give you legitimacy. When you do need to ask for something, people will respect you so much more. It's so much easier to ask for money or to raise your round when you've already built a relationship. And that was a really hard lesson learned. I, you know, that's again, a lesson learned in the rear view mirror, um, not in front of me. So, you know, being really diligent with updates and building your network early and, and, you know, sharing things early and often is so valuable. Really good advice. Well, Jeff, the hour has absolutely flown by. You've been just such a delight to have on the show and your story, just so relatable and interesting. Last question for you. How should people reach Keepsake or maybe you as a, an entrepreneur and tech stars uh, if they're interested in connecting with you or interested in subscribing to Keepsake services? Sure. So to get Keepsake, you can either go to keepsake.com. That's Q-E-E-P-S-A-K-E.com. Uh, or you can search Keepsake in the app store and get our mobile app and sign up that way. And to reach me, it's a really easy email address. It's Jeff, J-E-F-F at keepsake.com, Q-E-E-P-S-A-K-E.com. I love to talk to other entrepreneurs and to help wherever I can. So I'm happy to uh, you know respond. Jeff, thanks so much for being on the show this week. It was really a delight having you. And so such a great, uh, great business and, um, you know, so helpful to a lot of us parents and people who care about family members. So thanks for sharing your story today. Thank you, Doris. Thanks to all my listeners. You're the reason I do this. 
You can find more helpful information and resources on my consulting website, which is globalocityservicesplural.com, as well as my new radio show website, thesavvyentrepreneur.org. And you'll find there blogs, tools, podcasts, and other free resources. My door is always open for comments, questions, suggestions, possible guests, or just to shoot the breeze. Email me at dnagel at thesavvyentrepreneur.org. Now, be sure to join me again next Saturday at 11 a.m. Central, noon Eastern. But until then, I'm Doris Nagel, wishing you happy entrepreneuring. <music>